0: Johnny, what's happening, man? What's going on, man? Oh, man, it's all right. Tell me something, But Whatever happened to Hop Wilson, man? Well, Hop left us, man. He did. I... Boy, he sure used to play that guitar over at the Red Lily Cube. Yeah, he would lay that steel in his lap. He would get down, man. I used to like the way he said, I believe.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen. I'm the host of podcasts such as The Slash Filmcast and Culturally Relevant, and joining me today, he is the man who plays Dr. Divine in the 2021 film, Stay at Home. Stephen Tobolowsky. (laughs) Stephen, how are you doing today? David. You
0: know, there, there is this possibility that we could all fall off the end of the world at any time, and you are using Dr. Divine as maybe my last <laughs> possible query on the Tobolowski Files. Dr. Div- <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this is, so, so this is a movie that you shot yeah. uh, in 2020, right?
0: I shot this just a f- few weeks ago. Uh, my wife in this is Cherry O'Terry. Hilarious. And we were trying to do this all according to COVID protocol, which meant I was trying to hide in my car most of the time. And then when it was time to shoot a scene, I would run inside, masks on, Cherry and I would rehearse. But the weird thing about this was, because of COVID protocol, I didn't really get to do any of the scenes I was going to do with any of the people in the room. They had already shot the scene and were gone, and I was alone. It, you know, it was very much like in the old days when you you'd be doing a scene and the big star didn't want to work with you, so they would put a mm. C stand with a green X on it, and you would <laughs> and you would do the scene talking to the and some of my best work, David, was to the green X, but.
1: <laughs> I don't. Yeah, so so in, a normal, in a normal film, right, like there'd be, you know, a conversation happening between you and someone else, and you'd cut between shot and then reverse shot, right? You'd have a shot of the person you're talking to, and then a shot of you. But what you're saying is that for movies shot during the COVID era, sometimes uh, it will be just a shot of you, and then there's no one else in the room, and then they'll, they'll use movie magic to assemble it later, right?
0: Right. The, the, the other person who's talking to me is gone. <laughs> they they have already finished the movie, and apparently they were supposed to be pacing in the room when they're talking to me. So I can't yeah. even use the, the green X on the C-stand. I have to imagine it's my cat walking back and forth waiting for me to feed them. And and I'm going, like, well, I don't know where I'm looking. And they said, well, just just don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll do a couple versions, and you look at different places, and we'll, we'll find the ones that work. But David, we're doing the best we can to keep things running in the time of the pandemic. It's it's not a, it's not an easy task.
1: Yeah, uh, a, a few points of interest I want to mention right at the top here. First of all, uh, we banked all the Tobolsky Files episodes, including our intros, uh, months ago. Except for this one, right? We are recording this one right before the episode actually releases. That is correct. Um, so. As we're recording this, it's January 3rd right now, and uh, this episode will come out a little bit after January 3rd, um, but you are you are now hearing from our present-day selves, and uh, we've been through a lot through in 2020, and we hope that The Tobolowski Files has helped to provide some level of comfort, some level of assurance, uh, some level of edification during what was a very challenging year for all of us. Uh, on that note, Stephen, you were you were indicting me just now for ending the files <laughs> on this mention of this movie that has not come out yet. And who knows if, if and when it will. But uh, I think it's actually a very hopeful note to end on because it's a movie that you were able to shoot during the pandemic. It shows that your career uh, can go on. Despite all of the challenges that this world might throw at you, so that 's why I mentioned it tobo wasn 't uh, wasn 't meant as a slight it was meant as a uh hey, there is hope there is light at the end of the tunnel after all. What do you think about that tobo i
0: I think you know looking at the pot as being half full rather than half empty as per usual david you know you you 've always seen the light in the darkness and and i 've always appreciated that about you. I, I certainly hope that this film comes together. As Dr. Devine, I had a, a lot of fun sitting in my car and eating food prepared by my wife instead of eating the food on the set, wearing masks and doilies on my feet whenever possible to try to survive the film. You know, there's a certain point where you go, if not now, when? Right? If not now, when? We have to go to work, if not now, when? When I was doing the Goldbergs this last couple weeks, we finished, the script supervisor said, Stephen, how do you feel about shooting now three in a row? And I said, well, I think there's something admirable about it. That would be the David Chen point of view. But then there's also something very foolhardy (laughs) about about maybe risking, risking life and limb one more time. Going into the breaches. Anyway, I it's all I know how to do. The the worst thing about the pandemic, David, is that it's taken away from so many people what they're able to do well. And I haven't been able to do those things I do well, like acting in as Dr. Divine. I do best in movies where I get to actually talk to the people I'm in the scenes with, but I wasn't able to do what I do best. But it was a very clever film. It made me laugh. Working with Cherry is wonderful. So hopefully it all turned out good. And I'm willing to see the positive in all this, David, if you are.
1: All right. Well, I will try, sir. I will try. Boy, Stephen, it has been quite a journey to get to this point in the podcast and a couple of podcast announcements. We'll, We'll have some thoughts about what is happening next with the podcast at the very end of this episode. But before we get to that, uh, I, I kind of just want to ask you uh, to start with, this episode that we're about to listen to, we're about to record, we're about to hear from you about, is the season finale of The Tobolowsky Files. right? This is episode 99. It's going to be the last episode we release for a while. Uh, and so uh, we hope people have enjoyed this season of shows. Um, the weekly episodes will stop after this week. And we'll talk more later about when they will continue. But before we, we get to the story, Stephen, I do want to ask, like, um, what has been the response this season? What what are some emails, some comments you've received about this season of the uh, the podcast at your email address, stephentobolowsky at gmail.com?
0: I've gotten some amazing letters. I've gotten some—you know, we, we didn't discuss—what people don't know is that David and I, we don't discuss any of this stuff before we get together because David believes— and everything's going to work out for the best, even if we don't work it out. Here, I just happen to be looking at a letter I got from someone who's been listening to the podcast this season from Russia, a small provincial town in Volgada, Russia. And this is what he said to me. Uh, and he said, a person in in his town said that—it's a it's an old saying— A person has only two lives, and the second one begins when we understand that we only have one. And it moved me so much hearing that, and I realized that's kind of what the podcast is about, is going back over my life. I I asked Annie, my wife, have I been cannibalizing my life doing the podcast? And she says, no, you're writing about what mattered to you and in your life and by writing true stories about what mattered to you it kind of rings a bell with other people and that's what's moved me so much uh, about the podcast
1: well we are so grateful for all the listeners uh, that we've had this season and all the lovely emails uh, that we've received about the podcast Uh, Stephen does read them all and it it does make a big difference a big motivator for the next season oh Um, yeah uh, so, uh, one other programming note: uh, I want to mention that this episode. To to get maximum enjoyment from this episode, you're about to hear, be sure to check out episode 90 of the Tobolowski Files. Working Man, right? That is correct. Uh, so, uh, but we won't say exactly how it ties in. But check out episode 90 before you listen to this, the season finale of the Tobolowski Files. So, Stephen. Yep. To get us into the conversation today. Yes. I think uh, one way to do this is by thinking about how uh, throughout this pandemic, the world of television and films has been kind of this odd window into uh, past society and possibly a future society, right? The society that we might return to one day when the pandemic is over,
0: right? What you're saying is true. When I was little and... I guess it's true for a lot of people, too. I tried to imagine what the world would look like when I grew up, and my templates were movies, as probably were yours, I guess. And they were the only window where I could observe and study the future objectively. But David, even when I was little, and I'm talking like single digits, I knew that there were certain movies I couldn't take seriously. Westerns. I always knew those were fairy tales. A world where everyone rode horses everywhere was a non-starter. Even in Oak Cliff. No one rode horses except at birthday parties. And then the horses usually just stood there while you kicked them in the sides for two hours. I was still on the fence about Godzilla. That could be possible. Japan was a long way from Texas. And maybe at some point in the future, I would have to deal with the global threat that came from the distant past— or from Asia. It's surprising, but the film I thought most accurately depicted my possible future was Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. I was pretty sure angels existed. I completely bought the notion you could go backwards and forwards through time, and even though the future was written, it could always be rewritten. And I wanted to marry a librarian like Donna Reed. I knew she was beautiful, even if she did wear glasses. I identified with the adventurous spirit of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. George was an explorer at heart. He loved his life and his family. His goal was to lasso the moon. His accidental goal was to defeat the plans of Mr. Potter, the greedy, miserly banker. Sidebar. I have found one of the most surprising aspects of life is the accidental goal. Something you never planned on. Something you never expected to take up your time and your energy. For example, in college, my accidental goal was to defeat the plans of someone who was also named Potter. I wonder if Joan Potter would have appreciated the irony. Unlikely. In my adult life, I've had many many accidental goals, whether it was rock and roll, cocaine, horses, geology, or even the Talmud. My accidental goals have ended up being a shout into the canyon walls, listening for an echo, hoping it would show me a way forward. Lionel Barrymore's Mr. Potter, in It's a Wonderful Life, was a very frightening character. He's always dressed in black, throwing people out of their homes, eating candy, attempting to corrupt George Bailey with cigars. In the movie, he's described as a spider. It could have been my being co-president of the Dangerous Animals Club, but surprisingly, I took up several of the habits of Mr. Potter, not George Bailey. When I was a child, I became a miser. I got a little green metal mailbox bank for my birthday. It had a slot for pennies and a mail chute you had to open up for dollar bills if I ever got one of those. It was a good day if I found a penny on the ground. I see the copper glisten from a distance in the hot Texas sun. On the sidewalk, in the alley, even in the middle of the street, I'd run out and pick it up flip it from hand to hand so it wouldn't burn me, stick it in my pocket, and I'd feel it burning my thigh until I got home to put it into my bank. Sunday afternoons, after we got home from visiting with Grandmother, Grandfather, and all the folks on South Boulevard, I'd tell Mom I was going to my room to count my money. Count your money, she would say. "Uh Uh-huh. Steppy doors. It's such a beautiful sunny day. You could count your money when it's rainy outside and you can't play. Yeah, Mom, but no. I need to count it today. I would run to my room, close my door for absolute privacy, open the bottom of my little mailbox, and out came my treasure. I had a pile of pennies, a few nickels, five dimes, and the miraculous quarter I found by the swing set at the park. No matter how often I counted, the total remained the same. I stayed just beneath the $5 mark for what seemed like forever. Then I had a financial boom. I started losing my teeth. The going rate was a dollar a tooth. I lost four teeth in one week. For real, I couldn't eat, but it was one of the greatest weeks of my life. When I was 10, I bit into an apple and got a mouthful of blood. I was terrified until I moved my tongue and felt a waggle. It was a molar. More good news. The tooth fairy gave you more money for bigger teeth. I had no idea. I was over the ten dollar mark well on my way to fifteen. But more importantly, the tooth fairy's sliding scale made me feel like I lived in a just universe. Birthdays added so much to my green mailbox. I looked forward to aging. I counted my coins in the sunshine and in shower. In good times and in bad, I had dollar bills now. Then I received a bounty that came as a complete surprise. Aunt Esther and Granny in Pennsylvania started sending Paul and Barbie and myself, for no reason at all, money. First day of school. Valentine's Day, summer vacation. That was just crazy. When I turned 12, my desires outgrew the great garloo. I wanted a guitar. Instead of just giving me the guitar on my birthday or Christmas, my mother introduced me to a new universe, the universe of cause and effect. If I wanted something for my enjoyment that was not related to school, I'd have to pay for it myself. That was harsh. I only had about $32.57. The guitar I wanted cost 70 I didn't have that many teeth. I needed cash. I needed real cash and not just the buck 25 i I'd get for pushing a lawnmower and a cloud of gasoline fumes in the broiling sun. I needed a real grown-up job where I could sit in air conditioning all day long doing nothing. My prayer was answered by my uncle, Jaime. My father must have pulled family strings to circumvent Texas's child labor laws. Jaime was the boss of E.M. Can Clothing Store in downtown Dallas. He offered me exactly what I needed if I were going to get a guitar, a real grown-up job. I knew it was grown-up because I had two coffee breaks, which will really wind your clock when you're only 13. You would think... The job was perfect for me. I sat in air conditioning from 9 to 5, and I did nothing. Well, okay, that's not literally true. I did a lot. I alphabetized hundreds, probably thousands, of little metal plates of potential customers of EM cans in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Sidebar. But it was effectively true that I did nothing. Here's the question I asked myself. Why? did I have to alphabetize the metal plates? Everyone was going to get a flyer anyway. So what difference did it make if A.B. Smith's flyer was printed 17 seconds before Alan Caldwell Smith's flyer? But the job paid $1.20 an hour, five days a week. I would have enough money for two guitars after a month. Even if Uncle Jaime fired me the first day, I think by law he had to give me two weeks' notice. I could still buy at least one guitar. If the job worked out, I could get a portable television set for my room. I saw one on my lunch hour across the street for $110. Yeah, that would be pretty luxurious to lie in bed watching the Twilight Zone or Alcoa Presents instead of walking the 20 feet to our living room and watching with the rest of my family. Footnote, the little television set was black and white. That wasn't a problem for me. Most television shows were in black and white back then. The Flintstones and Walt Disney were in color, but I could see Walt Disney movies anytime I wanted at the Winwood Theater, and I could wait on Fred Flintstone. I worked for Uncle Jaime for eight weeks that first summer. Amazingly, the government interceded on my behalf and raised the minimum to roughly $1.33 an hour. I was making more than $50 a week. I bought my guitar, and it was okay. I could play Peter, Paul, and Mary songs, Freight Train, Puff the Magic Dragon. I worked for Uncle Jaime for two more summers, but that last summer, Uncle Jaime threw me a curve. Stephen, the last two years, your performance was uneven, but you showed me you were willing to work hard. I was thinking of a new job for you, It pays more than $1.70 an hour. Uncle Jaime, that's wonderful. Hold on, Stephen, hold on. You won't be doing the same thing you've been doing the last two summers. I reined in my expectations of a new black-and-white television set. I remembered how horrible work can be. I answered carefully, What would you like me to do, Uncle Jaime? Jaime nodded. You won't be working in our building anymore. You'll be down the street at the warehouse. It will involve manual labor. Lifting boxes, unpacking merchandise, moving merchandise to and from the store, organizing deliveries. I didn't understand anything Uncle Jaime was saying, but I was sure I could do it. I started to say yes when Uncle Jaime interrupted, Hold on, Stephen. Hold on. You should know. The warehouse isn't air-conditioned. The blood drained from my head. And then I thought about the $1.70 an (laughs) hour. Best decision I ever made. I had no idea I'd love manual labor so much. Lifting heavy boxes, moving sweaters from rack to rack, checking invoices. And who needs air conditioning? In Texas, in a corrugated steel building in the summer. We had a big fan, two of them actually, in the rafters of the loading dock. Fans were much better than air conditioning. The cooling effect of moving air on sweat is highly underrated. When I first walked into the warehouse, I was scared. I didn't know if I could manage it. I'd been sick for almost two years. Doctors didn't know what was wrong. Whatever it was, I couldn't eat. I lost weight. I was anemic. My parents took me out of gym classes. I couldn't play sports. I spent my life in study halls. I was worried about my possible future. Footnote. My youngest, William, is now a doctor, a graduate of Johns Hopkins Medical School. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. He asked me about this mysterious illness, its symptoms, duration. He offered an ex-post facto diagnosis. He said that I probably had some form of Crohn's disease or similar autoimmune disorder, He suggested that this opinion was also supported by the fact that I had childhood eczema, also an autoimmune disorder. My mother and father were sick with worry. I'd hear my mother crying in her bedroom at night. Not long ago, my father shared how scared they were during this time. Dad shook his head and said, Stephen, we thought we were going to lose you. No one knew what was wrong. Then Dad looked out the window at assisted living, silent, lost in a memory of what could have been. Stephen, nothing we did seemed to work. Mom and Dad were happy when Jaime let me work at his store over the summer. It kept me busy. I made money. However, I don't think they had any idea what Jaime wanted me to do this third summer. And if they did, (laughs) more, more good on them. The physical work. In the heat, the gift of the warehouse transcended the $1.70 an hour. Jaime gave me the opportunity to feel capable. I no longer felt fragile. I got stronger, mentally and physically. The warehouse was about chaos and improvisation. No more meaningless filing. The store literally could not operate without our efforts, and we knew it. We were proud of what we did. There was no racism or classism in the warehouse. We were the brethren of the ceiling fans. My boss was Marvin. Marvin walked through the warehouse with an expression of perpetual concern. He knew something was terribly wrong. He just didn't know what it was. Maybe the sweaters were on a truck to Waco instead of of Waxahachie. Or the twelve tuxedos for the upcoming wedding were in traditional black instead of the requested powder blue. The warehouse had too many variables. And this this was before the age of computers. So every shirt, every pair of socks had to be tracked through memos and packing slips and invoices. And all of these little pieces of paper were kept in folders and file boxes somewhere in a dozen warehouses across the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Part of my new job was one of the most important in the entire store. Not sales, not tailoring. Part of my job was putting price tags on clothes. (laughs) This was a job that used all of my available brain. Understand I had just turned 15 and a significant section of my brain was taken up with James Bond. I didn't have to work alone like I did when I had to file metal plates. My associate was Barry. Barry was 14, but he was an old 14. Barry was smart and funny. It was like he cornered the market on sunshine and brought it to work with him every day. Barry and I were the heart and soul of cans. We did it all. When a shipment came in, we took the invoice from the driver. We carried that piece of paper to Marvin. Marvin checked the merchandise against his book of incoming items. Then Barry and I counted the number of pieces and made sure the numbers matched. At this point, Marvin told us the price each item was to be sold at what we call the markup, the markup was usually 100%. For example, a shirt that cost cans $5 would be sold for $10 or even 12 Barry and I carried the piles of shirts or whatever to the tagging area, and we loaded a machine with a long ribbon of pins like a belt of bullets in a machine gun. We filled the printer with blank tags, set the item and the price, flipped a switch, and Bam! Tagged merchandise. As a victory lap, we wheeled whatever we just tagged down the street to the store to the sales floor where it was destined to make 100% profit. The American dream. And this wasn't done by magic or by labor unions. It was done by a 15- and a 14-year-old who was mature for his age. Perhaps it's rhetorical overkill to say Barry and I were the heart and soul of cans. More accurately, we were the digestive tract. We took in all of the raw materials and turned them into cash flow. Barry and I weren't the only questionable hires, according to the laws of Texas. One of the most unusual was our coworker Sam Schaefer. While Barry and I were too young to legally have a job, Sam was too old. Way too old. He was at least 70. No one knew. And I don't think anyone knew what Sam did. Over at the store, there were old pictures from the 30s and the 40s of Cannes employees at company picnics, and I spotted Sam in the pictures. He was always lurking somewhere in the background, which pretty much described what he seemed to be doing now. I'd see him now walking around the warehouse holding an empty clipboard. Sometimes he'd stand by the loading dock with a cup of coffee. As soon as a truck arrived... He'd walk somewhere else. On one of my trips to the store with Barry with a rack of suits, I stopped by Uncle Jaime's office to say hello. Jaime was happy to see me. I think Marvin had given me a good report. So how do you like the warehouse, Jaime said. I love it, sir. Works not too hard? No, sir, I said. Actually, it's kind of fun. Jaime looked at me. Be careful you don't have too much fun. Remember, you're here to do a job. Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, Uncle Jaime? Yes. Is Sam Schaefer some kind of executive? Oh, heavens no. Why would you say that? Well, he always seems to be watching other people, but doesn't seem to do any work himself. Jaime stared at me and then managed a smile. Sam's been here longer than anyone. He's always worked in the warehouse. When it was time to retire, his family asked if we could keep him on. They needed the money, and they were worried about him wandering around the house all day. This is all he knows. So, he doesn't do anything. No, he never did. I became more fascinated with Sam Schaefer, and more impressed by my Uncle Jaime, not only for giving me a job, but keeping Sam on to reward him for his years of non-service to the company. Sidebar. Loyalty is one of the strangest virtues. It's always recognized as a characteristic of nobility. But in reality, it's honoring the individual who doesn't have the imagination to change. Loyalty is the basis of all friendships. It's also part of the blood oath of the mafia. I discovered later in life that loyalty of sorts is the root of most comedy. The next time I ran into Sam in the warehouse, I introduced myself. Uh, Mr. Schaefer, I'm Stephen Tobolowski. It's nice to meet you. My uncle told me you're the longest-serving employee of E.M. Cans. Your uncle? Uh, uncle Jaime. Hyman Tobolowski. he gave me a summer job here in the warehouse. Sam smiled. Oh, you're the boss's son. No, no, I'm, I'm not his son. I'm his nephew. How long you been working here? Uh, This is my third summer. So, you only work in the summers? Yes, sir. I go to school during the year. I'm 15. Sam smiled and nodded. Oh, that's too young to be married. Yes, sir. But I'm not married. I go to school. I just work over here over the summer. This is my first year in the warehouse. I always been in the warehouse, Sam said. Yeah, that's what my uncle told me. You have always been here in the warehouse. Sam looked uncertain. Well, not always. I come from Europe. Yes, whereabouts in Europe? Poland. I was born in Poland. I came to America after I was born. After the war. Really, I saw you in some of the old Cairns employees' photos from before the war. You did, Sam asked. "'Yes, in Uncle Jaime's office?' Sam smiled. "'That's nice.' I stared at Sam and asked, "'So were you here before or after the war?' Sam looked confused. "'Which war?' "'When you came to America from Poland, "'was it before or after World War II?' I said. "'Oh, no!' Sam laughed. "'I came to America after World War I.' That's when I started working here, in the warehouse. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yes, but I wasn't born here. No, sir, I said. I was born in Poland. I came to work in the warehouse when I was older. Sam wandered off. I was never sure if Sam understood anything I said, ever. One Sunday after Temple, our family went over to Jaime and Hermine's for lunch. I always liked going over to their house on Desco. They had a grand piano I could bang on and peach trees in the backyard. Jaime had a ladder and said we kids could climb up and pick all the peaches we wanted. And there was an additional benefit now that Jaime was my boss. I could brown-nose him on his off time. This particular Sunday after the piano and the peaches... I sat with the grown-ups in the den listening to Texaco's broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera. That was Jaime's favorite. I told Jaime about my conversations with Sam. Jaime shook his head and said, "Eh, Meshuggah. What, I asked? Jaime looked out at the peach trees inside and said, Sam Schaefer is Meshuggah. On the way home, I asked Mom what Meshuggah meant. Mom laughed and says, It means you're a nut. Did someone call you Meshuggahna, Doors? Not yet, Mom. Footnote. I found out Meshuggahna is a Yiddish expression that covers a variety of insults. It can mean anything from someone who is overly sensitive to a full-on lunatic. Uncle Jaime's sigh was a pretty good indicator as to where he thought Sam Schaefer resided on the Meshuggahna spectrum. Lunch was an adventure when I worked in the warehouse. Mom gave me a little extra walking around money to eat at some of the working man diners in the area. The little coffee pot, the copper cow, and my favorite, without question, was the Blue Front. The Blue Front was a small, shabby German delicatessen on Elm Street. Their specialty was hot, sliced corned beef and potato salad with horseradish. Oh, God, this delight! Was so melt-in-your-mouth delicious, I still dream about it on good nights. Barry and I usually had lunch together. (laughs) Barry was always exploding with joy and jokes. And we talk about music and movies and guitars. One day, we decided to go to the Blue Front again. And on our way out, we ran into Sam Schaefer. He called to us, Hey, boys, where are you going so fast? We're going to the Blue Front for lunch, Sam. "'I come with you. Wait a second. I have to get dressed.' This was a mystery in that Sam was already dressed. Barry and I hung out by the door of the warehouse. No Sam. Barry looked at me. I shrugged. After a ten-minute wait, Sam appeared wearing someone else's clothes. I know they were someone else's clothes because they were about five sizes too big. "'All right, ready to go,' said Sam.' It was a brand-new blue-gray three-piece wool suit. Sam had rolled up the cuffs to his (laughs) knees so he wouldn't trip on the pant legs. He held up his waist with both hands, but occasionally I did see his striped underwear. The vest swallowed him whole. The jacket came down to his knees. He pulled the suit sleeves up so his hands were usable. The three of us started walking over to Elm Street. Barry looked over at me in horror and mouthed, "'What the hell?' which was as profane as we ever got. "'What are you wearing, Sam?' I asked. "'You like it? It's a new suit.' "'Yes, I see. But it can't be your suit, Sam. It doesn't fit you at all.' "'No, I know. I don't own it. It belongs to another man.' "'Who, Sam?' "'I don't know,' Sam said. "'I never get any new clothes. So when I go out to lunch... I pick out a suit I like that's about to be delivered. And I wear it to lunch, so I look like a big shot. And imagine what I would look like if I wore a suit. Sam, Sam, this suit is supposed to be delivered today? Yes. To a paying customer, I asked. That's right. So, do I? Do you what, asked Barry. Do I look like a big shot? No. No. "'Not really, Sam,' said Barry. "'But that's not a bad thing. "'Who wants to be a big shot?' "'I do, at lunch,' said Sam. "'Barry nodded sympathetically. "'Sam, I promise you everyone at the blue front will notice you. "'And they'll admire the suit. "'It's a very handsome suit. "'And if they ask where I bought it, I could tell them cans.' "'That's right, you're a walking advertisement,' said Barry. "'No, no!' I only work in the warehouse, Sam said. I jumped in. Sam, we're about to eat corned beef and gravy, potato salad, horseradish. What if there's an accident and you spill it on the suit? Not the problem, said Sam. If someone can afford a suit like this, they can afford a dry cleaners. We got to the blue front. Sam drew the appropriate amount of attention a Meshugana deserves. The three of us ordered the corned beef special. Of course. Sidebar. There was probably no better dish on earth than Blue Front's corned beef special. So the question is, now that the Blue Front is no more, where does that glory go? We can still enjoy great music, great movies, great works of art, but the unequaled flavors of the past seem to be gone forever. I wish to offer a simple remembrance of a magnificence that was. I know it was probably the salt, but it was still magic. We started on our corned beef, and Sam opened up the discussion. So, you boys in the army? Uh, no, Sam, we work with you at cans. I know that, but when you're not working at the store... Barry gave me his what-the-hell look no sam i said i don't think the military lets you keep your day job yeah that's what i thought too when i was a young man i had a job but the germans were on the move the polish captain come into our store and take me away they said i was going to be a soldier i don't know how to be a soldier i don't know what a soldier did I never fire a gun. Didn't matter. They gave me a uniform and shipped me to the front. And this is World War I, right, Sam? Of course. That was a big one, said Sam. Yeah, World War II was pretty big, too, said Barry. Nah, I wouldn't know. I wasn't there, said Sam. They sent me to the front. They gave me a rifle and a bayonet. You know, the big knife on the end. Right, said Barry, like a little sword. I don't know. Anyway, they told us as soon as you see Germans coming out of their trenches and start running at you, you run at them and stab them with the bayonet or shoot them if you have bullets. My God, that's horrible, I said. Yes, and I was just a young man from a farm. I didn't know anything about anything. I hadn't even been with a woman, and now I was going to die. What happened, asked Barry. Sam winked. I hid in a box. You hid in a box? Yes. Hid in a box. What kind of box, I asked? A crate. Wooden crate they sent supplies in. It was about yay big. Sam gestured to something about the size of a bread basket. I stay in the crate for three days. How did you eat, said Barry. I didn't. I didn't eat or drink. I was afraid to sleep because I snore. I was quiet as a mouse. I hear bullets and bombs all around me. I waited till everything was quiet. Then I crawl out of the box. Well, that's good, said Barry. Not really, said Sam. Everything was quiet because the Germans won. They were in our trenches, and as soon as I crawl out of the box, I was captured and they made me prisoner of war. Oh, God, that's horrible, I said. Not really, said Sam. They sent me to a camp in Italy. It was the best days of my life. They fed us pasta, lasagna, fish, roast chicken, never ate so good, and the women. The Italian girls thought we soldiers were romantic or something. I never wanted the war to end. That's... "'where I learned about women. "'Have you ever been with an Italian woman?' "'Uh, no,' I said. "'Me neither, but I'm fourteen, said Barry. "'Let me tell you something about Italian women.' "'Barry and I leaned in. "'Yes?' "'Sam continued. "'All Italian women are attractive. "'Every one of them.' "'I'll remember that,' said Barry.' Sam said, What time do you have? I looked at the watch my father gave me as a present when I became a working man. It's, it's almost one thirty. Hey, we need to get back to the store so they can get my suit out on the two o'clock truck. My days and weeks of cans, I saw my bank account grow. I had enough money now to buy that portable television for my room. However, once I saw that I was upwardly mobile, I began to think more like an adult. Instead of hearing the perpetual child inside of me crying, I want more, I began to hear my adult voice telling me, I want a lot more. The first thing I did was buy a better guitar This is something called a Martin. Yeah, I was assured by musician friends at school it was the best. It must have been because I still have it. I still play it. This was the guitar I came out to California with and used every day in the schools when I worked with Twelfth Night Repertory Company. I would not have had that job but for that Martin guitar. Buying a better guitar taught me an important lesson. Once you spend money, you no longer have it, unless you invest. I think Mom and Dad were concerned that I would spend all of my money on frivolous things like guitars or portable TVs. One morning, Dad wanted to drive me to work instead of my taking the bus, which is what I usually did. On the drive, Dad mentioned that his stockbroker had a tip of the rarest of rarest birds, a conservative stock that can grow. It was called American Home Products, or AHP, as we who buy, sell, and trade such commodities would call it. The company wasn't flashy, but it sold everything ordinary people buy. Anison aspirin, Robitussin cough syrup, Woolite, Easy Off-Oven Cleaner, Chef Boyardee. The stock sold for $50 a share, but Dad's stockbroker heard a rumor that the stock could split soon. Now, that would mean the price of the stock would go down, but your shares would double. Dad suggested I could start playing the market by buying 10 shares. It sounded very adult, and it pleasured the Scrooge McDuck area of my brain. I gave Dad the go-ahead. This probably marks the moment. Not when I became a man, but certainly when I became part of the middle class. At work, Barry and I were getting ready for the big midsummer sale. We got a shipment of Excelsior shirts and Arnold Palmer sweaters. The shirts cost the store $5 per unit. We tagged them for 10 The Arnold Palmer sweaters cost us $11 per sweater. We sold them for $25 each. What a racket. We loaded the tagging machine with pins, pulled the trigger, sweaters and shirts ready for sale. Barry and I loaded our clothes carts and played Indianapolis 500 down the sidewalks of Main Street, trying to see who could get their pile to the store first without spilling everything onto the ground. We pushed our empty carts back to the store, engaged in a big discussion as to who was better, the Beatles or Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was as good as being 15 could be. Sam was walking around the loading dock with his cup of coffee. Sidebar. Sam always walked around the warehouse holding a ceramic coffee cup. Over the summer, I noticed his cup was always empty. That's when I began to suspect that Sam never drank coffee. He only carried the cup to pretend that he did. Meshuggah. The sale started. The word at the warehouse was the store was doing great business, and it was all because of Barry and me. We were getting ready to take more clothes down to Main Street. Barry and I were goofing around with the tagging machine. It sprung to life. There was a mechanical stapling sound followed by a scream. Barry got tagged. He yelled, Oh my God, I've been stabbed! He held his bloody hand in shock. A pin with the price tag went all the way through the tip of his pointer finger. We, we got to get that out, I said, I grabbed his hand and took a look, and then I screamed. Holy crap! Is it bad? Barry screamed. No, it's worse. Barry, the price tag. We screwed up. What are you talking about? Barry cried. This is a tag for Arnold Palmer sweaters. We mixed them up. What do you mean, Barry stammered? We tagged the sweaters as shirts. This says Arnold Palmer for $10. That means we must have put the $25 tags on the shirts. "'Oh, my God,' Barry said. "'We got to go to Marvin.' "'Barry and I ran to Marvin's office. "'I showed Marvin the price tag in Barry's finger. "'Well, uh, let's get that out first, Marvin said. "'He grabbed a pair of needle-nose pliers and pulled. "'Barry yelled. "'Marvin poured alcohol on the finger. "'Do I have to go to the hospital?' Barry asked. "'Marvin examined his hand. "'No.' Pin went all the way through your finger. That's what we call a clean wound. You'll be fine. Just check with your folks you had all your tetanus shots. Thanks, Marvin, said Barry. Sure, said Marvin. "Uh, We have another problem, Marvin. It's the wrong price tag. We put the shirt tags on the sweaters and the sweater tags on the shirts. Marvin stared at me. Yeah, well, that would explain why the sweaters are selling out. "'Oh, God!' I gasped. "'Let me check that invoice,' Marvin said. "'He went over to his pile of paper and extracted the sweater and shirt invoices. "'Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. "'Okay, that's a problem. "'We are selling sweaters below cost to the store, so we're losing money with every sale.' "'Yeah, and probably no one will buy a $25 shirt?' "'No, that's right,' Marvin said.' That'll cost the store, too. What can we do? I asked. Marvin pondered. Well, at this point, Marvin walked around his office with a troubled look on his face, at this point, the only thing we can do is, uh, change the invoice. Marvin grabbed a little bottle of white out and carefully dabbed on the invoice. He blew gently and filled in phony numbers. Yeah, that should do it. I'll just get rid of the carbons. Marvin tore out the backups and tossed them in the trash. There you go. Done. Now you better get back to work, boys. Barry and I grabbed some Cokes. You okay, I asked. Yeah, Barry said. The cold Coke can makes my finger feel better. That's good. And and remember to ask your folks about the tetanus shot, I said. Yeah. We sat on the loading dock. "'drinking our Cokes and pondering the error of our ways. "'Do you think they'll find out?' Barry asked. "'Possible,' I said. "'Sam walked by, holding his empty coffee cup. "'He nodded to us and pretended to sip. "'Maybe we could say Sam did it,' Barry speculated. "'No,' I said. "'I know, I know, I know. That would be wrong,' Barry said. "'No, that's not it, Barry.' Sam couldn't do it. He couldn't do anything like this. He couldn't work the price tag machine. He's too old to wheel the clothes to the store. I don't think he even knows what Whiteout is. He's Meshugganah. Maybe we'll get lucky, Barry said. We weren't. Forty-eight hours later, I was standing in Uncle Jaime's office. I'm sorry, but I have to fire you, Stephen. This mistake cost the company thousands of dollars, and all because you weren't paying attention. I know, I know, I wasn't careful, Uncle Jaime. What about Barry? Barry is staying. He's only 14. He has to learn. You were supposed to be the example. I'm so sorry, I said. Well, it's not all your fault. I fired Marvin, too. Changing an invoice is unacceptable and probably illegal. A company is like a family. It can't survive with that kind of dishonesty. No, sir. And that was my last day of work at Cannes. I never saw Barry again. Our friendship was like the corned beef special at the blue front. What happens to something outstanding that vanishes with the passing of time? Does it become something else? I think it does appreciation. It sets the bar for future friendships, future corned beef, and future leadership, like my Uncle Jaime's. The awful truth is I don't regret the mistakes I made with the sweaters and the shirts. I still think it was kind of funny, and I even smile when I think of Barry Price tagging his finger. But what catches me off guard is when I think about how difficult it must have been for Jaime to fire me. And before he told me, he must have called mom and dad to break the news because they knew all about it when I came home. They were more concerned about making me feel better than punishing me further. The primary legacy of my summers with Jaime was that I learned that money wasn't enough. I didn't have the capability of taking all the things seriously you had to take seriously if you had a real job. In years to come... Whenever I thought of my possible future of becoming an actor and that it would be too difficult, I thought I could be working at Cannes. And I found the energy to dream another day. I I walked down from Dallas, Texas Down to Wichita Falls I got to thinking about that big lady woman There wasn't no walking on My baby got a black cat bone. Like everything I do. Everything I do is wrong. I don't know who said this, but there's an irritating amount of truth to it. You're not a writer when you say you're a writer. You're a writer when someone else says you're a writer. And it's the same thing when you want to be an actor. Someone else has to hire you. That is why money is such a concern. It's not like with ordinary jobs where money equals security. With acting, money represents time. It's the time it takes for you to get your next job. Add to that the pressures of trying to live your life, and if you want to have a home or a relationship or a family, it's daunting. When I came to Los Angeles... My time to become a professional actor had been set by my childhood. Fortunately, I was a miser. My money from cans, plus the money I made reading to a blind millionarist in college, plus all of my birthday graduation and lawnmower money from my green mailbox bank, amounted to about $20,000. I got a job right away with Twelfth Night Repertory Company doing children's theater. I didn't have to break into my initial twenty. And it stayed that way, more or less, for the next ten years. But when I married Ann, and we were going to have a baby, we were not financially secure. I was still jumping from small to medium jobs, very much like Marilyn Burns running from Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I even had to borrow money from my sister. And she was a teacher. Borrowing money from a teacher is like hoping to get a hamburger from a vegetarian. Annie and I were not doing that much better when I had the amazing, remarkable, good fortune to get cast in Mornings at 7 on Broadway in 2001. The job didn't pay that much money, especially when you consider we had two children. We would have to maintain two addresses, and one of those addresses would be in New York City. Annie and I sat in our den deciding our fate. There was more silence than speech, and then Ann said, You have to take the part. This is why we're alive. To achieve a degree of illusory safety, Anne reached out to Cecil. Cecil was an old friend of hers that had the reputation of being a whiz with finances. He worked with big companies in the past, and Anne was sure he could help see us through this stressful time. Cecil called me up and asked what my goals were. I told him survival. Cecil laughed and said. You may be asking for too much. Cecil began modestly by investing our savings in a variety of mutual funds. Some were safe, run-of-the-mill stock funds I had heard of on the financial channel, like QQQQ and Fidelity Magellan. But some were weird, highly leveraged funds that sounded dangerous. They invested in companies that had names I couldn't remember. Cecil said they all specialized in energy, whatever that was. These funds worked more like a casino. If the stocks went up, it paid double. But if it went down, you lose triple. I asked Cecil if it were prudent to invest in long shots while I was making so very little money for an unknowable period of time. Sidebar. Broadway works like a casino, too. If you're in a hit, you have to stay in New York longer making no money, meaning eventually you will go broke. Cecil offset my fears by writing the president of one of the companies we were investing in. He asked him why on earth he was running a closed-ended fund when the financial climate was screaming for open-ended funds. And the president listened to Cecil. He changed their offering to an open-ended fund. Amazing. And we doubled our money in a week. Cecil loved safety, but he also loved the long shot. In our monthly portfolio, I began to see a strange expenditure. The Arrow gold mine. Cecil bought 500 shares. I called him up. Cecil? Hey, man, how's it going? Cecil said. Great, great. Uh, look, question. About this Arrow gold mine, you bought 500 shares? <laughs> yeah, it's a hoot, right? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a hoot. Yeah, no, that's why I'm calling. Well, it's a gold mine that doesn't have any gold yet. See, that's the fun of it. You get in on the ground floor. Well, is that safe? Hell no, but there's no risk. The stock is dirt cheap. Well, check that. It's actually cheaper than dirt. It's five shares for a penny. So that would be 500 shares for a dollar plus brokerage fees. So you just, you just bought yourself a little bit of a gold mine with no gold. Yeah, that's right. No gold. That's what we in the trade call a penny stock. But it's not, Cecil. That would be bragging. It would take five shares of Arrow to make a penny. In fact, when the stock is worth a penny, that's probably when we should sell. Stephen, don't be concerned. I bought some, too. Okay, Cecil. I guess it's cheap enough to roll the dice? Exactly. That's the theory. It works with life, too. You don't roll the dice, you don't fall in love. You don't have children, you don't end up on Broadway, Cecil said with enthusiasm. Cecil's enthusiasm to roll the dice with our money continued over the next several months. The buy signal was flashing over Arrow. 500 shares here, 500 there. At one point, the stock went down in value. If such a thing were possible, seven shares for a penny, then ten shares for a penny. It was like Zeno's paradox. Theoretically, Arrow Goldmine would never reach zero. Each time it went down, Cecil saw it as an opportunity. A thousand shares here. Two thousand more there. That's when I realized my life was the same as Arrow Goldmine. Was it the dream that drew me? Or the fact that the buy-in for the dream was so little? When the play had ended and I left New York, Ann and I had amassed 100,000 shares of the Arrow gold mine. This cost $200 plus broker's fees, which cost more than the gold mine. Cecil got the biggest kick out of reporting that Arrow was considering raising their prices to four shares for a penny. We should buy more before we get priced out. I started working pretty soon after I got back from New York. That relieved the financial pressure of my Broadway adventure on our family, and it also made me see the humor in Cecil's investments. I think most young people have visions of fortune when they dream of a future in acting. Like a gold mine with no gold, the downside is just disappointment, and disappointment is hard to visualize. It comes in so many forms, whether it's the long hours working at a theater for free, painting sets, taking tickets, handing out programs, getting an agent who never sends you out, or finally getting real auditions for paying jobs and never getting a call back. All of that is never part of a calculation. It's hidden behind the clouds of your dreams. But you keep buying shares of nothing because the cost is so low. It's only the time of your life. The good Cecil brought into our lives by way of financial peace of mind far outweighed his occasional harebrained flights of fancy. He wasn't just a big talker. He put, he put his money where his mouth was. Yes, he bought shares of the Arrow Gold Mine, too. Even though I don't think he bought as many shares for himself as he bought for Ann and me. Eventually, we reached 450,000 shares of nothing. Anne and I were going out to get pizza at Maria's for lunch. We grabbed the mail to read while we waited for our food, and in the middle of the pile was a letter from the Arrow Gold Mine. This letter was different from the others, very different. It began Dear Stephen, congratulations, we struck gold while we are still arriving at final figures based on costs the board of directors has been authorized to announce a refiguring of share price settling within the range of $1550 and $1750 per share per share i jumped up from my chair holy shit i screamed oh my god oh my god and 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 and, and Anne! Oh my God! Anne, Anne! Anne! Oh God! God! Anne! Stephen, are you all right? No. What's wrong? I tossed her the letter. Read it. Read it. I'm not sure. <gasps> I'm not sure, but I think we just became multimillionaires. What? Anne asked. Look, arrow gold mine. Arrow gold mine struck gold. Oh God! 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 Oh dear God! Waitress came over. Are you all right, sir? Yes ma'am. Uh I don't know. I think we just became multimillionaires. Oh, that's nice. I hope you'll still come here for lunch. Probably. Well, I don't know. I don't know. We'll we'll have to discuss that later. I can't think right now. How did you get so rich she asked? Gold mine. Ah, yeah. Well, that's one way to do it. The bread will be out in a second. We're making a new batch now great. And uh, olive oil and balsamic? Right, right. She left to get the bread. Tell me, Ann, I could be wrong. Does that letter imply that we now have, I pulled out my phone and opened up the calculator app and typed in the numbers, we have just made, I'm just saying conservatively, in the neighborhood of $697,500,000. Anne looked at the letter, set it down carefully on the table. She spoke quietly and carefully. I know it's impossible, Stephen, but according to this letter, that seems to be the case. And we are now multimillionaires. Yes, it would seem so. Yes. Annie, the problem I'm having is I can't see how this isn't true. We need to call Cecil. Ann said, yes, yes, I need to call Cecil. I called Cecil. I just got the message machine. I said, Cecil, I just got a letter from the Arrow Gold Mine. We need to talk. Our waitress came back with a basket of hot bread. Here you go, fresh out of the oven. Well, thank you. Everything all right here? You need anything? No, no, we're, we're fine. As I mentioned, we're multimillionaires. If we have a problem, we'll just throw money at it from now on. Our waitress smiled. I wish. I know. I used to wish all the time, too. Well, well. now we're waiting for Cecil to call. Okay, well, I'll go check on your pizza. Thank you. I sat down and started eating bread. Anne said, Stephen, if this were true, we could contribute to the theater. Maybe we could sponsor their next production. That would be about $10,000. I stared at Anne. Are you out of your mind? $10,000? That's chump change. We could buy the theater now, and the bar next to it, and the tattoo parlor across the street. We're multi-millionaires, Ann. Don't bother me with these little contributions to the theater. We could buy homes for our boys. We could fund cancer research. We could shape the future of arts in Los Angeles. We are richer than Mick Jagger, and that comes with a lot of responsibility. We need to think. While you're at it, you better think of the tax liability, Anne said. Huh? Well, you think the government isn't going to want a huge piece of this? We can't expect to make this kind of money every year. Well, of course not, baby. Right. So next year we go back to making what we usually make, but we get taxed like we make millions all the time. We could go broke. No, no, honey, they'll have my tax records. They'll see this is just a one-time, huge, glorious thing. Eventually, they'll find out. But I'm talking about next year. They'll eventually know what you make, and maybe eventually they will reverse their adjustment. Maybe they'll issue a refund. But we are going to have to hire tax attorneys, and not just regular tax attorneys, but ones who handle multimillionaires. And whatever the government doesn't take, the attorneys will. You could end up in prison until they work it out. God, God. Well, what if, what if we just gave the money to charity, or at least give enough to charity for the tax benefit to offset a summer home in the Hamptons? Our waitress came with our pizza. Everything all right here? Just, just waiting to hear from our money guy to see if we're really rich. According to this letter, we just made several hundred million dollars, but we have to find out from Cecil. Well, good luck on that. Thank you. I said. Anything else you need? Our waitress asked. Pepper flakes. Ns. Red pepper flakes. Oh, absolutely, honey. I'll bring them right away. She left. The phone buzzed. Cecil. Oh, Cecil, thank goodness. Yeah, congratulations, Stephen. Amen, we did it. We did it. I couldn't breathe. I gave a thumbs up to Ann and put her hands over her face. I thought she was going to cry. We struck gold, buddy. Oh, yeah, we struck gold. You see, sometimes those long shots aren't so long. You just got to take a chance. Well, it's important to remember that sometimes there is gold. Sometimes there is, my friend, my sentiments exactly. So, ah, uh, uh, Cecil, Ann and I are just trying to figure out where we are in all this right now. According to this letter, I figure we just made roughly $690 million, give or take. Pause at the other end of the line. What? asked Cecil. Somewhere around $700 million. No, not at all. Well, yeah, of course, with fees five hundred million ish? No. Well it's gotta be somewhere what in the neighborhood of eight, nine figures? Not even if you count the pennies, said Cecil. Ten million? One million? No, Stephen. Cecil, it says here fifteen hundred dollars a share. We have four hundred fifty thousand shares. That's fourth grade arithmetic. Yeah, but the people are working here with sixth-grade arithmetic. Fractions. What we bought were fractions of a share, not a whole share. That way Arrow gets more cash flow coming in. You cover a percentage of their risk, and you get a small percent of the payoff if they strike gold. Mining is a risky proposition. How much, Cecil? After fees and taxes? Uh, probably close to $2,500 dollars twenty five hundred dollars. Yep, and that's not bad for sitting around doing nothing. I guess. I gave Anne a thumbs down. The waitress came back to the table with the pepper flakes. Anne looked at her and shook her head. The waitress looked sympathetically on anything else? No, but you could bring the check any time, said Anne. Right. Our waitress smiled and left. I'm sorry to bring you down, Cecil said. No, no, I I, I knew it couldn't be that easy. But on the bright side, (laughs) oh, God, if there is such a thing. The last 20 minutes were pretty stressful. Ann had me going to prison for tax evasion. Oh, yeah, sure. That happens all the time. What did Cecil say, Ann asked. He said you were right. I could have gone to jail. I told you, Ann said. Cecil, I got to be straight with you. It's hard being a multimillionaire. Oh, of course it is, Cecil said. You don't think it's easy to open offshore accounts or have second address in Luxembourg? No, it's hell. And you either die skiing into a tree or in a helicopter crash. And, and Cecil, multimillionaires have people. Oh, yeah, lots of people in your home, on your phone, advising you, lying for you. Having a lot of money is like having a dog that tears up your furniture. You love the dog. You don't want to get rid of the dog but your life is a mess. Well, I feel like I just dodged a bullet. Well, maybe not, Cecil said. What do you mean, I asked. Well, I've been going through your holdings, and this one stock keeps jumping out at me. Yes, AHP. What's that? AHP, American Home Products. That's the first stock I ever bought. I was 14. I was working for my uncle Jaime. Yeah, you need to sell it. I do? Well, I haven't followed it for years. You can't do that, buddy, if you're serious about making money in the market. How much did you buy it for? Uh, Ten shares, $50 a share. My dad said it was going to split? Oh, it did. Cecil concurred. Yeah, two for one, I remember. Yeah. And then it split three for one, then two for one again then three for two, then two for one, and blah, blah, blah. In short, you got a lot of AHP. And you've had it for so long, you only have to pay long-term capital gains. You need to sell it. Well, how much is it worth now? About $120,000. What? I turned to Anne. Cecil says my Uncle Jaime stock is worth $120,000 now. You're kidding. That's school for the kids. That's house payments. Sell it. Cecil? Cecil laughed on the other end of the line. No no, I heard the lady. <laughs> Shall we sell? Yes, sir. And think of it this way, Stephen. This is one hundred twenty thousand dollars. Make this much money twenty more times, and you will be a multimillionaire. I'm on it, Cecil. Thank you. Yeah, and sorry about the six hundred and fifty million. Not your fault, I said. Anne and I celebrated with a quiet dinner with the boys. I silently thanked my Uncle Jaime and my Aunt Hermine, inspirational leaders in their own way. Each made a profound effect on my life. The boys talked about school. Robert was preparing to perform a leading role in the school play. At this point in history, I thought acting might be Robert's possible future. But no, he became a professor in organic chemistry. I asked Robert what he was doing to prepare for his show. He said, "'Nothing, Dad. I just say the lines and try to be funny.' "'Well,' I said, "'That can work. It depends on the play.' William broke into the conversation. "'Dad, can I have a guitar?' Anne and I looked at each other. And then to William, who continued, "'A lot of my friends are signing up for Join the Band.' The bands have teachers, and they teach you songs. And when we graduate, we get to play a concert on Hollywood Boulevard. But I have to have a guitar. I know I'm too young to work, but I promise, when I'm old enough, I'll get a job and I'll pay you back. I almost started to cry over my green beans. It's a rare gift to confront your younger self at the dinner table. But in an instant, I saw it all. And it all made sense. When I was young, I thought it was about the money. Then I thought it was about the dream. Now, I saw that it was about the song. We're born not knowing what it is, but when we find out, we just want to be able to play it.
1: Why is it- was my possible future a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky you're listening to the Tobolowsky files Stephen as I mentioned at the top this is our season finale of the Tobolowsky files and I think there's a big question for people who are huge fans of the show which is when is the next season of the Tobolowsky files first of all keep subscribed there will be more stories uh if we are able to make them you know Assuming tragedy does not befall us, we will uh, deliver more stories of the Files. But uh, I would say our prediction right now, Stephen, is uh, two years or less, right? Def- two years or less. I'd
0: like to do it at the, uh, at the end of this next year. I'd, I'd like this yes. year-end thing happening on Christmas and New Year's, and I've already got the workings of the first five stories of the next season. So <laughs> let's, let's hope I stay COVID-free and uh, work free for a while.
1: All right. Well, so that's what you can expect. At TobolaskiFiles.com is uh, more episodes coming within the next two years, possibly the next year. And, of course, don't hold us to that. Uh, so, anyway, Stephen, that said, we had a bunch of uh, stories we had shot with you at the Whitefire Theater. I was planning on releasing them throughout the course of the season didn't get around to it, but I am planning on getting around to it in the near future. Uh, you can find a couple stories right now on YouTube, and you will be able to find more between now and when the next episode of the Tobolowsky Files is released. Uh, Stephen, where is that URL people can find that at?
0: Well, I think they would find that as uh, youtube.com Tobofiles. You nailed it. All right. You nailed right. it, Stephen.
1: At least it, took, it took us an entire season An entire of season. The show, but you finally got it. You yeah. finally got it, man.: Thank you. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Well anyway, uh, that's where you can find uh, video versions of Steven's stories. Find more episodes of this podcast at com. If you are interested in more of my work, check out my podcast, Culturally Relevant, where I interview authors, writers, directors and other interesting people from the Internet, including Stephen himself. And uh, thanks so much to Simplecast for powering the Tobolowsky Files this season. Check them out at simplecast.com. They're a great solution for managing and distributing your podcast. Stephen, closing thoughts for our listeners as we wind down this season of the Tobolaski Files.
0: Just remember the kind words from Russia is that we're all born with two lives. And our second life begins when we realize we only have one.
1: All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for letting us be a part of your lives. And we'll see you later.
0: Adios.